Now, this passage is high drama, and this high drama comes at us in two levels. You have the drama itself, and then you have the stage that the drama's on. So you have two main areas taking place. The high drama is the point of the passage, and that's what we're going to look at today. The high drama is the storyline, but the storyline is prowling around. The point's prowling around on a stage, and that stage is what we'll look at next week. So some of you are going to have many questions about this passage that we probably will not tackle today. We won't get to all of them. You've got to remember that the, the point of the passage is the drama. The stage that the point is prowling around on is a subpoint. And so many times we move and teach into this passage and the stage ends up becoming the point. And the stage of the drama is not the point here. So we're going to look at the point of the passage today. Next week, we'll look at the stage that that point prowls around. And the subpoint or the stage is this. It's the fellowship focus of the community. We're going to get to it, okay? But that's next week. Today, it's high drama. Today, it's high drama of holiness, okay? Now, I was working out one day and Paul Harvey came on the radio. How many of you listen to Paul Harvey? He can tell a story, can he? Man, I love listening to him tell stories. Well, he told a story of a burglar in Essex, England. It was an ingenious burglar. This burglar would bring his dog to his burglaries. And he would bring his dog and set his dog on the outside of the house of the window he got into. And the dog, if he heard or saw anybody, would growl. And that was the alarm system for the burglar. And then they would both beat it out of there and make it with lots of stuff. Never caught. Now, they were a dynamic duo. They were an incredible team until a burglar got botched one day. As he was inside burglarizing and the dog was outside, he heard the familiar growl and he jumped out of the window and made his escape. Problem was, he left his dog there. Several minutes later, the dog walked the 100 yards back to his home followed by the police. Oh, yeah. What this passage is showing us is that sin always follows us home. Always. No matter how good our guard dogs are. Sin will always follow you home. And Ananias and Sapphira were so full of desire that they defied the holiness of God, and so do we. And that's the point of the text. They were so full of desire. Don't miss the language here is that when Peter addresses Ananias, he says, your heart, you conceived this in your heart. And that's where the deed came from. They were so full of desire that they defied the holiness of God. So do we. And that's why this text is here. This text is here. Look at verse five, last part of five. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. Jump down to verse 11. It's repeated. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The point of this text is to move all of God's people. And notice the focal point, the primary target audience here is the church. Luke's account is actually taking place in the midst of the first church. They're the primary target audience. 
Luke has written this account inspired by God so that you and I hear this account. So the primary target audience is not an unbeliever here. It's not to be hellfire and brimstone and scare them into heaven. Though that's true. The target is you and me. A great fear came upon the church and all who heard it. Now, I don't want us to miss the order there. Notice what the text is saying. When they heard the report, they feared. Do you get that order? Do you hear how, how divinely intruding, how divinely breaking in hearing can be? When they heard this report, heaven pushed into earth. Fear was the result. So the hearing of the report was the cause. The hearing of the report was the root. The effect, the fruit was great fear. A great fear came upon the folks. Now we need to see that right from the beginning. So here's the point. Since fear comes from hearing, here's our point of the passage. Hear holiness to fear God. I need a little more stickiness than that. That just doesn't get me. Hear holiness to fear God. That's a nice proposition. What I think is more sticky is a sticky point like this. Shock your senses with holiness. That's the point of the passage. Shock your senses with holiness. Now you're thinking, well, how in the world do I do that? That's why we have the drama of the text. The drama is shocking. The drama gets by your barriers of intellectual beliefs. The drama doesn't end round your intellectual barriers and hits your heart in such a way that great fear comes upon you. And that's what this text is doing. But we got before we move on, we have to answer a question. Though some of you are thinking, but why do I want to do that? <laughs> and why do I want to fear God? Who who wants to fear God? I mean, that doesn't sound like a good thing. In fact, I know that God is love and doesn't love cast out all fear. I mean, what? Why? Why does God want us to fear Him? Why would He target the Christian community, the first church, right at the beginning? Why would a great fear come upon them? And how can that possibly be good? Well, there's two responses. I Just two quick responses I want to have for the Christian that's wrestling with that. One response to the spiritually skeptical that's wrestling with that. I know we need to answer that before we can move on to the drama. Here's the response. Two quick responses. The Bible marries faith and fear together as appropriate responses to God. The Bible marries them. I'm getting feedback, Bob, when I come over here. I don't know if it's my Under Armour or what, but something's happening over there. Uh, if you look in verse chapter 4, look at verse 33. Notice it says, A great power of the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You have great grace and great fear in the same passage. Two times great grace, or two times great fear is mentioned. You have great grace and great fear. They're not meant to be 
separate from this story. This is a literary unit. So at least in the literary structure, as well as the Bible as a whole, you have faith and fear marrying, shaking hands together as appropriate Christian responses to God. Okay? And the other thing that we need to see is that faith without fear forgets God's holiness. It forgets God's majesty. It forgets God's supremacy. And you know what happens to our faith when we forget God's majesty and His holiness? Our faith shrinks. Because God shrinks right before our eyes. And so even our faith is rooted in fear. Do you see that? Do you remember how practical can this be? Do you remember when... uh, What's his name? Joseph. Joseph. Remember when Potiphar's wife went to grab him? I mean, she's wanting him. He's saying no. He flees. She grabs his outer garment while he's leaving and it's used against him. But remember what he says to her? How then can I do such a great evil against God? You see, in Joseph's mind, it was a great evil because it was a great God. Faith and fear shake hands. Okay? Now, spiritually skeptical, we need to see this. When I was in high school, I once ran into a tree. Just once, that's all it took. (laughs) Not with a car, with my body. My body ran into a tree. And it was interesting, I noticed something immediately when I ran into the tree. This tree ain't moving. And I'm moving all over the place. Backwards, feet, head, arms. The holiness of God will one day move you. Today. Tomorrow. When He shows up at the great day at the end of this age. So my... my My exhortation to you is move now. Fear God now. Because you will one day. And it won't be good when that happens. Okay. Can we move on? We're going to spend the rest of our time together now hearing holiness. Looking at the shocking Shocking our senses with two sounds of holiness found in this text. Now, remember our point. Our point is shock your senses with holiness. That's our point. Now, there are two sounds in here that are meant to shock you. They're meant to push in the great fear upon you. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at sound number one right now. What is that sound? Do you hear it? It's guilt. It's, it's, it's heard in the voice of Peter. Look at verse 3. He says, Satan filled you. In verse 3. Let me get there. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Notice the dialogue here. It's coming from the Apostle Peter. And when he opens his mouth, it's sheer guilt every time he opens his mouth and speaks to him. He says, yes, Satan filled you, Ananias. You lied. Go down to verse 4. Go to the last part of verse 4. And this is what we looked at earlier. Why is it that you have contrived... This deed in your heart. 
Again, you were so full of desire, you defied the holiness of God. So you desired in the heart, then you did the deed. So if you ever want to know why you do deeds, it's because there's a desire in the heart. Okay? Now look at four again, but now the last part of four. And it says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And I, you lied to God. Now, guilt sounds so grating and so gloomy, doesn't it? You know, it is, it is the fingernails on the blackboard. It's so, ah, it's just guilt down the board. It's so grating and it's so gloomy because it's so Godward. Guilt is ultimately against God. Ananias, notice what he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias, you lied to God. Not to your wife. Not to me. To God. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Jeff, when you were comparing yourself yesterday to some other preacher, you were sinning against me, not them. Jeff, you didn't want to be seen less in someone's eyes, so you kind of just left out that part of the truth. You didn't tell a lie. You just left off that part of the story. It would have made you look bad. They didn't see it. I saw it. You did it to me. Now remember the target audience here is who? Is the target audience the unbeliever? No, the target audience is the church. So this first sound of guilt is to shock our senses. So how's the first sound of guilt to shock the senses of the church to God's people? How's it supposed to do that? How's it supposed to shock you right now? How? Do you all remember John Mohammed? You remember him? Notorious. All over the papers, all over the international scene a couple years ago. He's the murdering sniper. You remember him? Killed 10 people in the Washington, D.C. area. Unsuspecting, snipered them. Brutal. Callous. Well, he received the death penalty. This is on tape, but I agree with that. Now, he received it from a peer of jurors. His own peers. One of the jurors was a guy named Dennis Bowman, and he was from Virginia Beach. And he said, the reason why we gave him that sentence was for this reason. The total lack of remorse seemed to cap it for us. When you get get an awareness of God's holiness... You get an awareness of your sinfulness at the same time. This is meant to shock you into such a way to show you hear the sounds of guilt because the sounds of guilt is an echo of a greater awareness. The echo of a greater awareness is that God is holy. And when the awareness of His holiness comes in the high drama of Ananias and Sapphira, at the same time that the high drama shows forth the awareness of His holiness, there's a proportionate echo of an awareness of sinners that they're guilt before a holy God. An awareness of God's holiness 
and an awareness of your sinfulness rise and fall together. So brothers and sisters, the reason why we're not aware of our sinfulness, no remorse, because we're not aware of His holiness. And that's what this sound should do to us. It's the sound of guilt before a holy God. Growing in the Christian life is growing in walking with a holy God. I had a seminary professor that turned this completely on its head. He said, listen, and you've heard this before, those of you that haven't, or those of you who have heard, just tune out just for a second. He was teaching us in a class, and he says, guys, you know why you're so morose? You know why you're so introspective? And you know why you're so gloomy? We're all looking at him. Why? Maybe because we got three hours of sleep last night because of all your work? He says, you know why? Because you're handling holy things all the time. That's why you're so aware of who you really are. You know, Paul's description of himself is so shocking to the modern Christian today. Do you know that before he was a Christian, he thought very highly of himself? Did you know that? In fact, he thought so highly of himself, he says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, special favored tribe. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Who are you? He said, as to zeal for God, peerless. Where's my competition? I'm so zealous for God. I have such a burning passion for God. I'm so zealous. I win that race, is what he's saying in Philippians. And then he goes on, he says, as to the law, blameless. This is his description of himself. And you know what happened the moment he became a Christian? I am a sinner. I am guilty before a holy God. And then it gets better as he moves on in the Christian life. And this is when he's growing and mature. And he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. But wait a minute, Paul, aren't you getting better and better? And then he moves on and he even says, as he goes on in his Christian life, what a body of death. And you know what he says at the end of his ministry and the end of his life? I'm the chief of sinners. Unbelievable. Was Paul getting worse and worse? Was he getting more sinful and more sinful? No. Paul was probably the most godly person that ever walked this earth and ever will. But don't miss what's happening here. As he grew in understanding and walking with a holy God, he grew in appropriate understanding of who he really is. And he was maturing as he did. Now that puts most models of the Christian life, it kicks them out of the church. We have little to no awareness of our sinfulness because we have little to no awareness of the holiness of God. And this has tremendous implications for your relationship with God. And this is the way I want to picture it. I want to picture you in the shallow end of the pool 
What are you doing in the shallow end of the pool? You're standing up. You're confident. You're in the shallow end of the pool. You got the whole pool to you. I remember when our kids were first learning how to swim. And I still do. We go swimming. I've got four kids on me, around the neck, on the arms, around the waist. But I'm in the shallow end. And I'm in the shallow end. I'm like, you can do whatever you want, kids. Try to dunk your daddy. Woohoo! That ain't happening. And then you got all your little floaties. You know, you got your arm floaties, your wrist floaties. You got the little things that curl around here. And then I got a kicking board. So I'm, I'm, I've got all my helps. I've got all my props. I've got everything because I'm in the shallow end. And you know what this does to us? It pushes you out of the shallow end into deeper waters. The first time my kids were learning to swim, I put one around my neck. And I said, do you want to go out into the deep end, son? Yeah, daddy. All right. Jump on. Here goes the cruiser. So I head out into the deep end. Little I know, though, the other three wanted to go, too. And they're just learning how to swim. I have kids jumping off the side, jumping off this, all swimming towards daddy. (laughs) No, no, go back. They can't swim. So they see me. Life preserver. I'm in 10 feet of water. Kid around my neck. Now I've got three others coming at me. And they want to get on top of me because they want to get out of the water. How confident am I now? Got my little wrist floater. Just stand, Jeff. No, there's no confidence. The sound of God's guilt in this passage pushes you out into the deeper waters where you actually become desperate. You actually humble yourself. You actually become broken. You actually pray and really mean it. You actually say things like, Oh God, help me. And if you don't, I go under. And you know what happens in those deep waters? It's like he raises the ocean floor. I'm coming. And you actually know God. And you actually can read the scriptures. And when David says, I called upon the Lord in my day of trouble and he heard me. How many of you long to hear that? How many of you long to know what that is like? Well, I'll tell you this. You will never know in the shallow end. Never. You will have a shallow relationship with God if you don't hear the drama here. That God in His holiness brings a proportionate awareness of your unholiness. Now you're treading water. It also has powerful implications for community. It pushes you out of the shallow end of community into the deeper waters of community. And what that means is fellowship moves beyond 10 minutes before the service and after the service. When you and I actually get gripped by the fact that we are sinners before a holy God, we don't have these dividing walls with us anymore. You know, the Israelites and the Gentiles had that dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall? It was the law. Because the... The Israelites thought that, hey, if I do these spiritual laws, if I keep these external forms, we're better and we're more righteous than those folks. And it became a wall of hostility, comparing, measuring, judging. And in the same way, if we're in the shallow waters of a shallow view of 
God's holiness and the shallow view of our sinfulness, we're always, we're always pecking each other, picking each other apart. External forms, how you view certain cultural things, how you view certain applications of right doctrines. Oh, the Christian way is this way. Are you doing it that way? I mean, that's the way we live. And so we live and all of a sudden all these, these external forms and barriers get between us and it just tears down your fellowship. Because we're all trying to keep some law list going. Well, you know what? Holiness and sinfulness obliterates them all. Not only that, needing each other means something, doesn't it? When you're out there in the deep end and you can't stand up and you look around and all of you are out there in the deep end and you all can't stand up, you need each other. You often wonder, why do you wonder that, that soldiers come back in tighter community than most churches? Why? Because they're in over their head. And they've got to count on the one next to them. And they literally go through stuff together. What would the church look like if we did that? What would the church look like if we understood that's the way it really is? That we're really not in the shallow end. The shallow end's a game. You're in the deep end. You just don't know it. Also, we become safe, unshockable, sincere people that rise to minister to each other. Wouldn't we? I mean, you'd be a safe person if you really understood God's holiness and your sinfulness, and that's true of everybody. You'd be a safe person. You wouldn't be an unapproachable person. You'd be so approachable, so safe, so unshockable that people literally want to go there to get refuge and get grace from you. And you're the first one that stands up to raise and minister to someone else. All right, the first church grew daily in an awareness of God's holiness, awareness of their sinfulness. And what happened? A great fear fell upon them. Second sound. Second sound is death. Do you hear it in the text? If I was a movie, I'd say we're about ready to enter into our territory. Okay? Not in any um, risque way, but in violent way. So, be ready. Do you hear it? Listen to verse 5. Ananias fell down. Do you hear that? Now, he could have hit his knees first and then went to his face. Or, he could have went from standing straight up, straight to the ground. If he went from straight up, straight to the ground, you would have heard a sickening thud as his hit, his head hit the earth. You know, it would be like a watermelon dropping from 10 feet. And you're supposed to hear that. He fell down, the text says. And then he breathed his last. So if you were there, if you were Peter, if you were one of the others that were there, you'd hear this last breath. It was probably quick. I guarantee you it was panicked. And then nothing. Nothing. As he breathed his last. And then if you were there... This whole scene would have been repeated as Sapphira came in. The sound of death is meant to shock your senses. The sound of death here is meant to shock you. 
Because sin always brings the wrath and curse of God. Always. No exclusions. Sudden, severe, shocking. Now, what would happen to the sin you're wrestling with if you began to look at that sin you're wrestling with right now? What would happen if you began to look at the sin you're wrestling right now if you were to look through the lens of every sin deserving the wrath and curse of God? As we wrestle with sin, Christians, because remember this is written to us, a great fear came upon them. As we wrestle with sin in our life, what if we were to, to look at our sin differently? What if we were to, as the Puritans say, let's take the mask off that sin. That sin looks so nice. That sin looks so fulfilling. That sin looks so pleasurable. That sin looks so life-giving. I want that sin. And what if we were to go in and say, okay, in the midst of that power and passion that's flowing through you right now, remember... They were so dominated by a desire, it led to their deed. They defied the holiness of God. Well, let's, let's bring the lens of that sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. How would that affect you? How would that affect me? What would, looking through that lens, that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, what would it do to your confession and your repentance right now? What would it do to mine? What would it do? More sincere, more real, more heartfelt, more not treating it lightly, possibly. What would your gratitude, what would your joy, what would your worship, what would your freedom in Christ look like if you began to look through the lens of Jesus' death on the cross satisfying the wrath and curse of God for you? What would your joy in the Lord look like? What would your thankfulness to the Lord look like? What would your worship of Him look like? What about the freedom right now if you were to literally look through and say, on the cross, the wrath and curse of God was satisfied for me. What would that do to us? It'd lift up our hearts. It would say that that sin right now that's whispering in your ear that says you're guilty, you deserve death. You're guilty. You deserve death. You're guilty. Look at you. You deserve death. And you look at the cross and you say, yes. And there it ended. Get up is what would happen. What would it look like? What would it look like in your heart? Now your heart, you're looking at an unbelieving neighbor. You're looking at an unbelieving neighbor. What would go on in your heart when you look at that unbelieving neighbor looking through the lens of the wrath and curse of God, that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God? What would happen? I think there'd be a lot more compassion. I think there'd be a lot more not regarding people from a worldly point of view. You know, how they dress and what they look like, that stuff would just fall to the ground. What they do, it's incidental. Tremendous compassion, tremendous mercy, maybe praying for them, befriending them, being hospitable to them. The first church grew that day in awareness of the wrath and curse of God. And what happened? A great fear came upon them. Now, we've looked at two sounds of holiness. We've looked at guilt. 
And what did guilt bring? It brought an awareness of God's holiness and a proportionate awareness of our sinfulness. We hear the sound of death. And what its death do? It shows us that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. Every sin. Every sin. So some of you are thinking, but why Ananias and Sapphira? Couldn't it, have, it could have been any one of us. Does God still do that? I mean, do we have these, these intrusions of immediate judgment today? Well, guess what? We'll look at that next week. We have a website. Go to the website. Hit the sermons. Those of you who want to hear what happens, you can get it then. Okay? I'm done. That's the sermon. Oh, I forgot. There's one other sound. One other sound in the text. Did you hear it? It's moving through the background like a shadow. It's silent. And everywhere the shadow goes, pieces come back together. Everywhere the shadow goes, multitudes of men and women are added to the Lord. Everywhere the shadow goes, heaven hits home. Everywhere the shadow goes, the perfect image bearer says, let there be light. And there is. Everywhere the shadow goes, people are forgiven. Hearts are transformed. The peace of God is pushed in. The love of God is showered upon. A renewed vision of who God is and life is given. People's lives are transformed and they start interpreting reality differently in all the areas of their relationships in their lives. Everywhere the shadow goes, heaven is unleashed. Do you see it? Do you see it in the text? Look at verse 15. I'm not at my Bible. I just closed my Bible. Who can read that out loud right now? Verse 15. Verse 15. Steve, do you got it, brother? Out loud. So that they even carry out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Yeah. Do you hear that? Do you hear what's going on? Some of you are saying, come on, that's superstitious, Jeff. They're being superstitious. I mean, they're, they're lying in the streets of all the sick that need to be healed, the demoniacs and those trapped in darkness, and they're waiting for them to come by and possibly the shadow will hit them. Perhaps it's superstitious. Or perhaps they're teaching us the extreme bounty of the gospel. In other words, it couldn't be contained in Peter's person. It spilled out into his shadow. How do I know that's true? Look at verse 16. And they were, what's that word? All healed. So even if they were, in their motivation, superstitious, God didn't care. The bounty of the gospel was spilling out of Peter. And it was into his shadow. And that shadow moves silently through this drama of holiness. Do you see that? Because this is one unit. So, brothers and sisters, what happened at the Ascension, it was such a cosmic event 
that it literally, when Jesus ascended, he ushers in a new creation begins. A new creation of people, a new creation of a place that's already in heaven. And one day will come crashing down and unite a new heavens and a new earth. It's already happened. It's already in heaven. It's already accomplished. And what this ascended one has done is he has silenced the sounds of guilt leading to death. That's why the shadow is silent. So, brothers and sisters, this message is for you. It's not even meant to be preached out to the unbeliever. The ascended one has silenced guilt. The ascended one has silenced death. So what we need to do is we need to be shocked in this passage, don't we? We need to be shocked. Our senses need to be shocked with holiness, but especially the holiness of an ascended one. The ascended one. I am done. Amen.